Hey, welcome to night school. One two two o two one, January second, twenty twenty one. Had a couple days of just pure darkness, and the weather forecast says that's what we can expect. Just dark, stormy rain. Dark, stormy rainstorms. Stormy rainstorms. Uh, but uh, yeah, you know, it is what it is. You know, I it didn't didn't really feel like anything changed overnight for me. Uh, but it's a new number. There's a one at the end of that. 2020. It's 2020 plus one, as far as I'm concerned. A couple people yesterday sent me anti 2020 messages. One of them was a web comic where 2021 was pushing 2020 off a cliff. I, I didn't say anything, you know. I just don't have anything to say about that. It's not like I get that and I'm like, "How dare you? How dare you?" Somebody else said, "Fuck last year." Happy New Year, fuck last year. Again, I'm not gonna say anything. I'm not. I just can't. But I've also decided that, you know, 2020, (laughs) defending 2020 also isn't the hill that I'm going to die on. 2020 is over. 2020 is over, and I'm not going to spend much more time. I'm not going to say I'll spend no time, but I'm not going to spend much more time defending 2020 and saying it, it is what you make of it. It's what you make of it, you know. I'm not going to spend much more time doing that because I think the biggest waste of all would be if I decided that defending 2020 is the hill we're dying on after 2020 is over. In 20 years, in 2040, I'm going to be like, it wasn't that bad. You just had to have the right attitude. No, I don't want to be that person. On a different topic, uh, there's this service, you know, since I took over this house, there's this service that was already set up where you get an email every morning and there's, it doesn't just tell you what mail is coming, it's a scanned image. The post office scans the front of every single letter every single piece of mail you receive. And so you get an email in the morning that shows you what to expect that day. Sometimes it doesn't match up perfectly. Sometimes you'll get something maybe the next day. But for the most part, it's pretty accurate. But it's amazing the sense of dread that this thing gives me. Because you see everything you're going to receive in the mail. And depending on who it's from, I mean, some things are, you know, there's mystery letters, which are usually junk mail. You know, if it doesn't say who it's from, I should learn by now. I should learn how this works by now, but I'll get something and it doesn't say who it's from, but it's, you know, typed out. It's clearly some sort of commercial enterprise, but it won't say, it'll just say a PO box. And it's like, yeah, that's usually going to be a credit card that wants you to sign up. It's usually going to be something like that. Somebody that wants you to do something that you are unlikely to do. And by not putting the name of the business, you're more likely to open it. Uh, So it's funny how you get those. But if I get anything from a place that I actually do have an account with, especially if it's important, 
if it's from the bank, if it's from the insurance company, if I see that I'm expecting something and it's not my bill, like if it's not, because you know, certain things you get in the mail, you know, you kind of know the rhythm of them. You know, you know when a certain bill is going to come in the mail. But if you get one that's out of turn, if you get something from a company that, you know, has some important role, some institution, you know, you get that. And for me, it just gives me this sense of dread. It can easily hijack my day. And I don't want to get rid of this service. Sometimes I don't look at it. You know, I go through periods where I don't look at it because it is a really nice service because, you know, in this neighborhood, there's a mailbox bank. At least that's what I call it. I call it a mailbox bank, which is, you know, all the mailboxes are together and there you have a key. They're not even really mailboxes in the way that we visualize mailboxes, just like this big, you know, this giant rectangle with a bunch of smaller rectangles in it. It's like an outdoor P.O. box or something. But, uh, you know, so it's, you know, I have to walk up the street. I mean, it takes... It takes effort. It takes deliberation to go check the mail. It's not just right in front of my house. So, you know, it helps me decide if I'm even going to check the mail that day. It helps me decide if I'm even going to check the mail. But if I see in the morning, if I check this email that tells me everything I'm supposed to receive, and I see something that seems important, it's going to hijack me for at least a half hour. If I manage to forget it, that's wonderful. But there are some things where I'm, I see the oh, the homeowners association, which is uh, there's so you know I, I know that there's probably a lot of good they do, but it's it's also just one of those things that you end up. I, I don't know. Everybody you ever talk to hates the homeowners association. But if I see I have something from them, because they'll notify you and be like, oh, your trash can was visible. You know, from the street for longer than you're allowed, you know, because you're, you're only supposed to have the trash can out on the street for a certain amount of time on trash pickup day. You know, there's all these regulations, these commandments. And, uh, you know, so if you get something from them that you know isn't your, it's it's not your bill, it's not your dues that you owe. It's something else. It's like, it very well might be some complaint. Oh, you have too much debris on your roof. Uh, so it could be anything, but just seeing that I have something like that that seems important can easily hijack my whole day. But yet I don't want to get rid of it because it's a nice service, but I feel like it is just a perfect example of technology, really. Because it's so simple. It's like nobody thinks that that's advanced. I mean, it's kind of amazing to me that the post office, they must have some system set up, but it's kind of amazing to me that they scan every single piece of mail. And one of the good, re- you know, one of the benefits of that is this neighborhood has had mail thefts, which is why we signed up for this service. And so you know, if if you know something gets to the post office but it doesn't get to your mailbox, maybe it went missing or got stolen, something happened. So it's nice in that way too. It's not that I think this is some horrible service. Obviously, it's of use to me, and that's why I haven't gotten rid of it. But it's also just a perfect example to me of the dilemma of technology, where this isn't some advanced technology either. The idea that oh, the post office scans your mail and sends you pictures of the mail that's coming that day. It's not, while it's amazing the post office takes the, the time to do that, that they have some kind of system, it's not like some super advanced technology. 
But it is just one of those things that's easy to overlook. And it's amazing that that can give you any feeling at all. Like, I can't believe that that gives me a sense of dread. Maybe excitement sometimes, too. I mean, it's pretty rare that I get something exciting in the mail. Uh, but, you know, it can give you a sense of excitement as well. Maybe the, maybe this just tells me I need more exciting things. I need I need to order more exciting things or something. Maybe this just needs to fuel my taste for commerce. Just order little things. Uh, that make me excited to to check. It's not even checking the mail. You have to. I'm check. And, the, and this is how you know sort of meta things are, where it's like I'm checking an email that tells me whether or not I should check my physical mail that day. I'm checking an email. Yeah, it, it's just all so removed. You know, it, it's like I might as well have a video of me checking the email that tells me what mail to expect so that I know whether or not to check my actual mail. But I was thinking, too, about, you know, the sort of stuff you receive, and I don't mean for this to be some, like, junk mail monologue, like some Jerry Seinfeld, like, you know, I, have you ever heard of junk mail? So you get this junk mail, and, you know, the creditors, they don't, or the credit card companies, they don't uh, put their name on it, they just list a P.O. box because that way you're going to open it. You know, I could easily turn this into that. But something I thought of earlier was imagine if you got junk mail that was like the junk email you receive. Imagine if you got the just gibberish, the nonsense. Because, yeah, you get junk emails that are from real companies advertising in the same way that you get junk mail sent to you physically. You know, you get emails that are basically an electronic form of that. You know, anytime you get signed up for some kind of newsletter, anytime somebody's trying to sell you something or get your business or any of that, of course that happens. But, you know, with the way that junk email just became this just gibberish scam, you know, that's most of what it is. Most of what it is is like somebody in China who might be a robot sending you something in broken English about selling you PVC pipe. And it's it's just it's incomprehensible how that could even catch anybody. It's one thing if, you know, the classic like, oh, it's a prince in Africa has decided to bequeath his fortune to you, which is absurd too. But the ones that get me are where it's just like barely readable broken English trying to sell you PVC pipe. Industrial PVC pipe. <laughs> you know, like, I get those. And imagine, though, if you got that to your real mailbox. Like, imagine if you got these letters that were just handwritten, maybe. And, uh, or the... Well, because that's another thing. I mean, I don't mean for this to be... I'm. This is just turning into, like, what's up with mail? Uh, but you do get those, too, that are typed in a font that looks almost like handwriting. Like, you'll get these people who are like, we want to buy your house. And they send them to everybody. They want to buy everybody's houses. Who are these people? But you'll get those, and uh, 
the outside of the letter, it uses a font that's like one of those pseudo handwriting fonts, which is kind of the, it's the font version of the Uncanny Valley, where it's like at first glance, it seems like handwriting, but you also feel like something's wrong, like you're also not tricked by it. You see it and you're like, oh, that kind of looks like handwriting, but then within a second, it registers that something's off that the letters are too uniform. And that's sort of what the uncanny valley is with simulations with people where it's like, oh, they look almost like a real person, but there's something subtly off. It's that sort of Android effect, the uncanny valley where it's like, they don't, they haven't quite nailed the subtlety. And in the case of these fonts, it's because it's too uniform in most cases where it's like, oh, each letter is exactly the same, but they're made to look like handwriting. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you were getting junk email, that, or if you are getting junk mail that was along the lines of the junk email you get, this is getting confusing. Junk mail, junk email. Junky mail? Junky mail. He's a junky mail. No, but uh, if you were to get like these just scrawled gibberish, you know, that'd be amazing. And it'd be amazing if you got that amount. I mean, I lived at a house, my last house, whoever lived there before it had been, I mean, it was a rental. So all kinds of people had lived there. And so, you know, because of that, people had gotten signed up. Like it was amazing the amount of junk, you know, it was so rare for me to actually get something real. Because so much of it was just like coupon, like bundles of coupon crap. You know, it was just all sorts of nonsense that several generations of tenants had gotten signed up for. So you see all kinds of names too. And speaking of that, like when you do live in a place and you're still getting mail for somebody who used to live there, and you know, of course, not important mail, but just junk, but you see their names. It's like your imagination really runs wild with that. You're like, who were these people who lived in my little space here? Who were these people? Maybe they were, uh, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, just with uh, this this dreaded mail service, you know, I'm not going to cancel it, but it is the classic technological dilemma where I think this is a valuable service, and I like that I know what mail to expect. I like that I can kind of mentally prepare but it also hijacks you. It also fills me with anxiety and dread sometimes to to know that I'm expecting something that seems important, sometimes scarily important, but I know from the time I wake up, but I can't actually, like the mail here, the mail at my house doesn't come until the very end of the day. It doesn't come till like four or five o'clock at night. So you really have to wait all day and then, of course, like when you're in that mode, when you're in the mode of like, there's something important coming in the mail and I got to check it, you always end up checking the mail a little bit too early. Like I'll check it at four o'clock thinking, oh, maybe the mail's here. You know, because I think what would be great is along with this service that tells you what mail to expect every morning, you should also get some sort of notification when the mail has been delivered to the mailbox. That probably exists. Or it will. It, it, that's my million-dollar idea. My million-dollar idea is uh, you get a notification. Just one more thing to dread at that point. Be like, oh, my God, the mail's here. One more thing to dread. 
but I, I mean, I feel the way about, I feel the same way about a lot of technology where it's like, I'm not anti-technological. I am a modern man. And I try to, as long as something is useful to me, I feel like I'll use it. I'll find a way to use it as long as it's useful to me. And I'm not going to take some sort of philosophical stance about technology just because it's new or just because it's technological. But I mean, along the same lines, I'm also not going to embrace it just for the sake, you know, I'm not going to oppose new technology simply because it's new technology, but I'm also not going to embrace it just because it's new technology. I'm going to wait and see if it's useful. But there's always a dilemma with that. And I think that's how it should be with technology. I think there should always be a technological dilemma. Maybe not always. You know, I don't, I don't want to be absolute about this. There should always, you should always just be a mess. Thinking, of, <laughs> You should always just turn into a bubbling mess when you think about your own relationship to technology. No, you don't need to. <laughs> if you can accept technology, accept it. But it is that thing, and I mean, it, it does play into the uncanny valley thing where there are so many, you know, I think technological communication is, is a part of that, where it's like, this is almost like real communication. This is almost like talking, but it's not quite. And that's the source of a lot of problems, because people treat these things like they are the same thing as the real thing. You know, people treat like something they read online or something they read in a message as if that person is saying this thing to them. But there are several more layers to it, you know, or, or less for that matter. But I mean, there's it's something that somebody thought they typed out, they sent or published. And then you had to log on or you had to check your phone or you had to do whatever you do in order to see it. So there's several extra steps that aren't there in normal communication, in just person-to-person, voice-to-voice communication. And so that itself creates kind of like, I don't don't want to say an uncanny valley effect. Because like I don't read a message from somebody or I don't see something that somebody said online and think this is almost like a real person saying it, but not quite. And because it's not quite like a real person, it bothers me. You know, I don't, I don't think that in the same way that I would, you know, seeing a CGI recreation of somebody that's almost convincing, but not, or seeing a fake handwriting font on junk mail. You know, it's not quite the same feeling as that, but I I think there's something to that. Um, but yeah, with that dilemma, I mean, I think it's the same sort of feeling you get when you get a message and you haven't read it yet or an email, whatever it is, and you just aren't ready for it. It's not like it's anything heavy duty. It's not like it's anything. It's like emotional, but you get something and you're like, I don't want to deal with this yet, but you also know you're going to have to look at it. And like the fact that you have this notification, like the fact that your phone says you have a message from somebody and you might be able to see a snippet of it, you might see a little preview of it, you know, it, it's, it's sort of the same feeling as this email thing, like getting this, 
email of what mail to expect in your mailbox that afternoon. I mean, it's all sort of the same feeling to me where it's like you get this thing that comes to you immediately and it can hijack you. I don't know. Um, but, uh, going to keep this one fairly short. My laptop's not even plugged in. That's my hourglass. How I'm going to manage keeping episodes shorter is by not plugging my laptop in. Cause that way I look at the battery and, you know, as you all well know, you people know about mail, you know about email and you know about laptop batteries and that's the, you know, the longer you have a laptop, the, the quicker the battery goes. It's just like when you get older, how time flies. The older you get, the faster time goes. Or the older a laptop gets, the faster its battery goes. But it creates this sort of hourglass effect where doing an episode like this without, without the laptop plugged in, it's like, you know, it's, a, it's ticking down. There's grains of sand as I speak just falling to the bottom of that hourglass. And when that's up, that's up. So it's going to be a way that I keep episodes shorter. And I'm well aware of the fact, too, that that audiophile repellent has been making appearances lately. It's made appearances in both the, the last two every night to school nights, which is exactly what I don't want. I don't want that high-pitched feedback behind my voice on the every nights of school nights, because I see those as more like the foundational blocks of all this. And so the fact that there's some sort of audio issue really bothers me. But maybe that audiophile repellent, maybe that audiophile repellent, that high-pitched whine that's not super loud, but it's, it's obvious enough that you can hear it. Maybe I'm the audiophile. Maybe this is a confession. Maybe I am an audiophile, and uh, that audiophile repellent that is making its way into many of the episodes could very well be in this episode. After I finish recording, I might very well listen back and hear it. But maybe I'm the audiophile, and the audiophile repellent is there just to unnerve me. Maybe it's all about me. Turns out I'm the audiophile. All this demonization of audiophiles, all these episodes where I talk about, you know, all the things that should be, all the torturous things that should be done to audiophiles, and it turns out I'm the audiophile. Turns out the audiophile repellent was directed at me all along. That's the big twist. I probably am an audiophile. I probably am an audiophile. And that's what I'm going to tell the therapist. When I eventually, someday, when I'm 75 years old, I'm going to go to therapy for the first time. And I'm going to say, listen, doc. And I know you're not a doc, but it makes me feel better to call you a doc. Listen, doc, uh, I just got to be frank with you. I'm an audiophile. I know that about myself. I try to keep it under control, but I'm an audiophile. Do you have to report this to somebody? Do you have to report me to the authorities? Or does this fall under, you know, like therapist-client privilege that I'm an audiophile? The database of audiophiles. Yeah, I went to the website and uh, they, uh, I found out there's an audiophile two doors down. 
I'm going to keep him away from my stereo system. My stereo system. Now, here's what they should have. They should have an email. Every morning, you should get an email that shows you the faces and names of every audio file in your neighborhood. That'd be the next step, right? You know, because there's already the... uh, the sex offender database where you can look up every sex offender in your area. I did that once. And then I just, I was like, you know, I don't need to be doing this. (laughs) I don't need, I don't need to know about this. I was curious though. I was, you know, wondering if some sort of, you know, unexpected person might show up, maybe somebody that I know, an acquaintance. I was just curious, not, not anybody specifically. I was just curious if it would end up giving me a surprise like that, but no, I didn't know any of them. Most of them were exactly what you'd expect. Uh, but uh, it'd be cool if that sex offender database was actually emailed to you. You get an email every morning showing all the sex offenders in your neighborhood. And then once that service becomes normal, once that process becomes normalized, you get an email with every audio file in the neighborhood. Although, you know, I have to figure, you know, are audio files becoming more and more rare or more and more common? Because you think about, you know, like a hi-fi stereo system. Like there used to be a lot of personal investment in the way that you play your music. Like even just the idea of having a stereo receiver is completely foreign to younger people. Even foreign to my generation. Like, I, I even had to learn about that. Because, you know, when I got into music, you could buy these CD slash tape players, and they had an auxiliary input. So you could put it, you know, you could plug a record player in, but they weren't necessarily designed for that. But they were just these these hybrid tape CD players. Everything was built in. Everything was in one unit, one console. And so you didn't need to go buy a receiver and then separate speakers and then a separate CD player, a separate cassette player, and then feed all those through the receiver. You know, you didn't have to do that. So you would have just this all-in-one unit. And so I actually had to learn, you know, as I got into music, as I, you know, got into records, because, you know, I didn't grow up in a household where anybody was listening to records. Uh, You know, my parents didn't have a record player. My sister had one for a while, but it wasn't, she wasn't into it. You know, she wasn't deeply into vinyl or anything like that. Uh, So it was something I had to learn about on my own. But I think younger people today, like I remember for Christmas one year, 10 years ago, a girlfriend bought me a stereo receiver and she didn't know what it was. I remember her giving it to me and she was just like, I don't even know what this is. And it's strange when you think about it. It's like, it's this thing that looks like you know, think about a stereo receiver. It looks like something that you would play music on, but you just run things through it. It's kind of strange to people today. And then thinking about the idea of audiophiles and how a big part of audiophilia, audiophilia, you feel, you, no, no need to even make a joke. Um, but one of the things about audiophilia, audiophilia, is people get to be very particular. It's not just that they want a certain quality. It's not just that they want to hear things sound a certain way. It's that they also get very particular about the sort of equipment 
not just brand loyalty, but just they have certain preferences for the way things are set up. So there's, you know, it's something people are invested in, not just in terms of I want to buy nice equipment, but it's like just the way they handle it, the way they set it all up. And that's not something that you can even really do now. You know, you think about Bluetooth devices, you think about the sorts of speakers people use, the sort of devices that people use to listen to most music. And there's very little configuration involved. Like, yeah, you can probably EQ things. Like, I don't know if people listen to iPods anymore because iPods just got melted into the phone, the crazy phone world. Uh, but I imagine you can EQ that stuff. Like, I don't listen to music on my phone. I've never had an iPad, an iPod, whatever it's called. I mean, these days, who even cares what you're saying? I mean, like the idea, like hearing about iPads went away so quickly. Like that was such a big thing for a moment. Oh, the iPad. And uh, it's like now iPads might as well be iPods. And imagine like trying to explain to your grandparents the difference between those things, you know. Uh, But, uh, you know, I imagine even with stuff like that, point being, point being, I imagine even with these modern listening devices, your phones, your pods, your pads, your everything, I imagine there's a way to EQ things. I imagine there's ways to kind of customize your listening experience, but it's not a given. And most people aren't going to do that. I mean, I wouldn't do that. If I even listened to music through those things, I wouldn't even do that. I wouldn't care about the EQ. I wouldn't try to change it. I would just take it as it is. Uh, So, you know, I I do wonder if audiophilia is kind of a thing of the past because it involves, it it was a hobby in a way. You know, you think about somebody who's into a certain quality of audio and it was almost a hobby. Like I was saying, it involves certain equipment and involves particular preferences and not just preferences as in, I want to hear things loud and clear. I want the, the audio to be clear. People also have preferences as far as like bass response, treble. You know, there's all kinds of things to think about. And now with things being so streamlined, I don't think that's the case. And and with that, though, I wonder, though, if it's created a whole different type of audiophile. Because people are so used to clear audio now. They're used to heavily compressed, clear audio. And it's easier to create that than it ever was. You know, I've been listening to some old Alan Watts lectures, and I'm impressed sometimes at the quality, because you can tell it's a tape recording, there's surface noise, and that's just what you got. You know, that's just what you got from that, because this was a lecture that was tape recorded in, what, the 60s or 70s or something. can't even remember when he died. Uh, But... uh, It's just one of those things where it's like you just kind of expect it. I mean, if you grew up listening to tapes... You just accepted that there was hiss. You accepted that there was surface noise. But it's gotten much easier to record and listen to clear audio. You know, the the devices are doing less to color what you're hearing. So you're hearing things with greater clarity. And as a result, I wonder if younger people are more, you know, accustomed to that. You know, are they... Do they just take, I don't know, are they a new form of audiophile where they don't care about it, but they will, I don't know, it's just, it's, they've grown up with everything being very clear. 
They haven't dealt with tape noise. They haven't dealt with a radio transmission that is going in and out of service. Or even if it's in service, it's gritty. It's raw. It sounds good, though. You know, all that stuff sounds good. And so that's the thing that happens, though, with technology. As things go, you end up fetishizing the things that were unwanted from the previous phase. It's like I've talked about before, how people now think that Xerox artifacts look really cool. People think that like something that's been heavily Xeroxed and is high contrast with a lot of surface noise on the paper, they want that now because it's not something that you can readily create. So it becomes this sort of aesthetic choice in the same way that recording analog music was once all you could do. You know, when the Doors, when the Doors were recording their albums, they didn't sit there and, and think, like, we want this to be analog. We're looking for some analog warmth. We're looking for some analog... Hey, we're the Doors, and we're looking for some analog warmth on L.A. Woman. They didn't have to say that because it was just part of what was... It's what you did. You recorded on reel-to-reel. Later, you recorded on tape, you know? It, it's just what you did. And so it wasn't an aesthetic choice, and it sounds great. You know, the recording sounds great. And, you know, it's not that there weren't nuances. It's not that there weren't production techniques. It's not that people had no choice in what they were producing. But the fact is, is that they didn't choose analog warmth in the same way somebody chooses that today. And it gets more and more difficult to do that, which makes it more and more desirable. The fact that it's so difficult to find analog recording equipment. I mean, try finding a analog 8-track today versus 10 years ago versus 20 years ago. It's much more difficult. And if you do find one, chances are it might have something wrong with it. It might be broken. I've Many years ago, I found this amazing 4-track that I found out Bruce Springsteen recorded his first album on. I don't know how that works. I don't know how many layers are on that. I don't know if they bounce tracks. I imagine he probably had more resources available to him than just this four track. But I looked up. It was so cool looking. It was, I think, one of the first four tracks that you could get at home. And if I remember right, it was created in the late 70s or early, very early 80s. I want to say 79. 79 rings a bell. But I found it at a pawn shop. And it was very bulky for a four-track. And it looked great, though. And then it didn't work, of course. I mean, you're buying a four-track from 1979. Of course, something's wrong with it. But for me, doing that, it's like I had to go to a pawn shop. And this is like 2005. So it's like I had to go to a pawn shop and get this thing. I had to make an effort. Like, I didn't go to Guitar Center and be like, show me your digital multi-tracks. Show me Pro Tools. You know, I didn't just go to the, the new store. You know, you had to seek these things out. They become a jewel. They become a treasure. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is, you know, with technology, when it enters the next phase, the previous phase of technology becomes a jewel in a way that it wasn't before. Before, you know, when something is 
the current technology or a new technology. It's a jewel because it allows you to do more. It allows you to do something that maybe you weren't able to do before, or it at least allows you to do something more conveniently. But it's a whole different type of jewel when you're looking for something that is no more or that is quickly fading, which is why it's like finding a four track from 1979 is amazing. That's one heck of a jewel. But with those older jewels, there might be an issue. It is older technology. People don't necessarily take care of these things. Um, so you go through that in the same way that people fetishize Xerox artifacts. You know, you, you think in, in 1990, if you're Xeroxing art, art, you're Xeroxing art in 1990, and there's all this noise, you know, there's all this visual noise on what you're Xeroxing. You might go, this sucks. You can't even see it. You can't even see the original image. Or if you're photocopying, you know, a document, you may, there's all this surface noise. I got to mess with the settings. But then that becomes desirable 15, 20 years later. Where suddenly it's like, you know what? I want this to look the way that a, a Xerox document looked in 1990 or 1980. And it gets harder and harder to do that. There was a Xerox machine in town here. There was a copy shop that had a Xerox machine. I mean, it wasn't even Xerox. It wasn't Xerox brand. Uh, but it had a... A coin slot. Like, all it took were quarters. All it took were coins. And it gave the best look. Like, it looked medieval. Like, when you ran things through that, it turned them out, and they, they it almost looked like a block print. It was, you know, t completely analog. And then you still had some decent machines. You still had some decent Xerox machines at places like Kinko's for many years where you could get kind of a cool look like that, where things looked kind of ancient. Like if you ran something through their Xerox machines and the settings were right, it would be kind of a, a little bit deteriorated. Like the original image would be black and white and a little bit deteriorated, but not completely ruined. So you, you were able to get this kind of subtle effect that made things look really cool. But I still remember when they replaced those machines with the completely digital machines. Like those machines still had a digital component where you could, you could still get this good analog sort of effect out of these Xerox machines, but they were part digital. Like, you could pay with a credit card. This, you know, there was a, a digital panel on them, uh, but the result was still cool. But then I distinctly remember it when they replaced all of those machines with these 100% digital Xerox machines, where even the noise, like even the surface noise on a piece of paper that was produced by the machine looked digital. Like even the, you you put it into high contrast, you mess around with the brightness, you mess around with the darkness, you mess around with those settings to get something that looks kind of withered, but it looks withered in a digital way. And that was disappointing, but it's also just something you have to accept. It's like having to accept the fact that it's more and more difficult to buy analog four tracks. Like, I remember a time when you could, you could get a second-hand analog four-track that takes tapes easily. You could look on Craigslist. 
you could still find them in the stores in some cases. You could find them on Amazon pretty easily, and then it's gotten more and more difficult. It's gotten more and more difficult difficult to find a you know an old analog Tascam, and people who like those things hoard them because they know they break. They know that they're hard to obtain. So again, it becomes like a fetish. It becomes a jewel. This thing that was once just the standard. Oh, we record music this way. You know, this is just how it is. You know, Bruce Springsteen, when he used this 1979 4-track that I briefly had before I returned it to the pawn shop, you know, when Bruce Springsteen recorded this album, allegedly... When he allegedly recorded this album with this four track, he wasn't thinking, oh, this is going to be cool, like vintage. The sound's going to be kind of rugged because it's just a four track. And I'm not a Bruce Springsteen fan. I have no beef, but I'm not one of these Bruce Springsteen people. So I, I can't tell you how that album even sounds. Um, but he wasn't fetishizing it. He might have thought, oh, this is a cool vi- This is a cool device. This is a cool device, guys. My best Bruce Springsteen impression. This is a cool device. Uh, But he, you know, he might have thought that. He might have thought this is cool. But he wasn't fetishizing it. He wasn't treating it like some sort of antique. He wasn't treating it like a typewriter. Because typewriters are the, you know, the writer's form of this. I'm talking about four tracks, but the typewriter is the four track for wannabe writers. Uh, and and you can't reproduce that either. I mean, there's a reason why seeing typewritten uh, typewritten material is so impressive. For the same reason that, like, when you buy a book, when you can tell that it was printed with a block print or something like that, you know, when you can tell that it, that it used, you know, a very antiquated way of printing. You know, it's, I'm losing my finesse. My I'm losing the finesse of my words here, but you know, it's just that sort of feeling. You know, when it's it's that same sort of feeling, and so when something is written on a typewriter, it looks organic. You don't get that uncanny valley feeling. Although you can download typewriter fonts that try to recreate a typewriter effect, but but then you get the uncanny valley where it, it's like the handwritten fonts the pseudo handwriting fonts where you know it's not the real thing and because of that it kind of bothers you like when I see somebody use a font a digital font that looks like a typewriter it's almost worse than just using a regular old font because I'm like you're trying to get this typewriter effect but it doesn't actually look like a real typewriter produced it therefore it doesn't have the feeling it doesn't have you know, it just doesn't have the same quality, so why even bother? And that's how I feel about androids, too. It's like, if this can't actually be a person, why make it look like a person? If this, if this isn't actually handwriting, why make this font look like handwriting? Why not just use a font that everybody knows is a computer font that is, that is good? Because I like computer fonts. You know, I like all the classic fonts. I like all the classic fonts. I do. And so, why not use Arial? 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 However you say that. Why not just use that instead of some fake typewriter font 
that doesn't have the de- the degradation and atmosphere of an actual typewritten you know visual a typewritten piece of material that's that's just how i feel about it you know and uh you know but i, I don't know it's kind of the same thing when people try to recreate anything to me it's like when you try to recreate something or emulate something without actually being that thing, you always run into this sort of uncanny valley effect, in my opinion, where it's like you might as well have done something completely different. Rather than creating a poor imitation of something that already existed, you know, you might as well have just gone with something different and embraced that for what it is. And that doesn't mean embracing the newest thing. You know, when I say, oh, instead of using a fake typewriter font or using a fake handwriting font, use something else. You know, I don't mean make it completely digital. Make it look super digital. I don't mean that at all. I think there's a healthy balance to these things. It's kind of like I'm talking about with new technology where, you know, you don't have to hate new technology because you like old technology and you don't have to hate old technology because you like new technology maybe hate's not the right word maybe it's just disregard you don't have to disregard old technology because you're excited about new technology and you don't you know the opposite is true as well and there's a healthy balance between that where you just you have your taste and I mean, I would say that's true for me where, you know, whether something is new or old, I know whether it fits my taste. And I might not know, you know, right away, but I, I can usually figure it out. I can usually figure out, again, whether something is going to be useful for me. But that's just, it's the dilemma of technology. You know, and I think technology should give you both excitement and dread. Because there's excitement and dread when I get these emails telling me what to expect in my mailbox later in the evening. You know, there's excitement to that. But there's also the dread where it's like, oh, God, I have to wait all day to check this thing that could scare me. This piece of paper could scare me. Oh, the insurance company sent me a piece of paper, and it's not the time of month where I normally expect my insurance bill. So I'm scared. I'm scared. Scared of paper. I am scared of paper. (laughs) No, I'm scared of what paper represents. You're not scared of the paper. You're scared of what the paper represents. It's true, though. You never know what's going to be on that piece of paper. And, uh, you know, it could be uh, gibberish trying to sell you PVC pipe. No, but it is amazing, like, you know, for as casually as you can throw away junk mail without second thought, like with no deliberation, when you recognize something as junk mail, you're just like, oh, that's in the garbage pile, the recycling pile, depending on how severely you feel. Sometimes I throw things in the garbage that could be recycled as kind of a statement. Like sometimes I'll throw junk mail in the garbage, even though I could recycle it just as sort of a statement. This is how I feel about it. This isn't something that needs to re-enter the ecosystem. This junk mail, it doesn't need to be recycled and brought back into the ecosystem in a different form. It just needs to be thrown out. 
You know, that's sometimes a statement. I mean, I do that with art. Like I don't res- like if I start a drawing and I don't like wh- what where it's going. Like if there's a sudden fatal flaw, and I know that I'm not going to be able to continue working on it, and I'm done, I will throw it in the garbage. I will not recycle that. I will not recycle a failed drawing, failed artwork. I will throw it in the garbage. Um. But I mean, in that uncanny valley thing, like it's always used in reference to these kinds of like pseudo human, pseudo humanoid, android, robot type scenarios or AI. But you can really see it in all kinds of things where you know handwriting can be the uncanny valley. You know, whenever something is trying to achieve a certain result or give a certain impression, but it's not the thing that actually generates that impression, you get that same feeling. I mean, there are analog effects that you can apply to digital recording equipment. And while there's nothing wrong with those in their own right, they're also not analog. They're also not the thing. Like I knew a guy who had a, a guitar pedal that made things sound like they were coming out of a Victrola. And it was kind of cool in its own right, but it, it also didn't sound like the real thing. So there's sort of an uncanny valley to that. There's an uncanny valley to everything. It's almost like it's the real thing, but it's not quite. And that bothers me. It's kind of like the Anton LaVey trapezoid thing where it's like, you know, it's a pyramid that's missing its top. And because of that, it bothers you. Something doesn't seem complete about it, even though it's its own shape and it's totally complete. The fact that it's missing that pyramid point at the top disturbs you. You feel like something is missing. So I feel like a trapezoid is sort of the shape of the uncanny valley. It's it's sort of a, a, the perfect representation of it to me because it's, it is its own thing. In the same way that when an android gets created or when a font is made to emulate handwriting or a typewriter. It's its own thing. It exists. A trapezoid is its own shape. It exists. But it's not a comfortable shape. Something about it bothers you. It's missing something. And that's what you always feel with the uncanny valley. That is the bottom line of the uncanny valley, is that you always feel that something is missing. And that what is supposed to be represented is not represented because it is missing something vital. So something to consider. You know, think about the different ways the uncanny valley affects different things that you see and interact with. It's not just people. It's not just humanoid things. It's also the technology you deal with. It's so many things. So many things are trying to create something that it can't possibly create because it isn't that thing. And so no matter how far along it goes, no matter how much it develops, no matter how convincing it tries to be, it isn't that thing. This land is mine God gave this land to me 
this brave, this golden land to me. And when the morning sun reveals her hills and plains, I see a land where children can run free.